Voting in progress. Good. Okay. So our topic for tonight is um, one second. Our topic for tonight is Jerusalem beyond the walls. Jerusalem beyond the walls, and uh, the era in time will be roughly 1860 through World War One, is what we'll cover tonight. Moses Montefiore came to Jerusalem for, I believe, it was his sixth trip. In July of 1855, he ripped his clothing as he camped outside the Jaffa Gate. And his old nemesis, James Finn, the consul, always looking to convert Jews to Christianity, tried to undermine Montefiore's reception in the city. Montefiore came to accomplish a few things. One was to support with charity the indigent Jews of the city, which he had always been doing for the last 25 years. Also, to take advantage of new opportunities that were afforded to non-Muslims in visiting the holy places. And three, to scout up possibilities of expanding the city beyond the old city's walls. So when it comes to holy places, Montefiore was the first Jew to go on the Temple Mount in several hundred years. It had been forbidden for a long time. And because of the capitulations that the Ottoman Empire had to make to the European powers in the, in the aftermath of the Crimean War. So now non-Muslims were allowed up there as visitors. Monty was going to go as a Jew, but ever the Orthodox observant Jew he was, in a sort of peculiar way, with certain exceptions to his piety, um, he didn't want to step foot on Harabait. So he went in a sedan chair, carried by, you know, by four strong men underneath him. He goes on the sedan chair. They carry him onto the Harabite. So he doesn't actually touch the ground of the Temple Mount. Fine. Isn't it something that yeah, going Bodell was never allowed to touch his feet on the ground? Somebody who was... Um, Coin Gadol left in the time they were born. No, no, that's you're talking about the people who were participating in the in the paraduma uh-huh. had to be on an elevated platform in a certain courtyard of Jerusalem, so they could not possibly contract the tumah the, the tumah satahom, the tumah, the impurity of the depths, in case there was an unknown grave. Uh-huh. The Kohen Gadol was a normal person in that regard. Uh, you may be thinking, but the Pope. The Pope didn't step foot in Italy for a long time. Uh, between the demise of the Papal States in 1929, the Concordat, uh, because of uh, antagonism over the loss of the Papal States. But that's another religion. Not Ron Cohen Gadol. Okay. So that's next door. He was there to, to distribute charity. And the Jerusalemites lived off of this Chalukah, off this charity. Yet his idea was we got to get these people working. This cannot continue indefinitely. We need to have economic productivity by the Jews of Yerushalayim. He tried to wean them off the handouts. Their reaction was to go into a fit of rage and riot. Okay, Uh, Montefiore was successful in certain regards in his trip. He got permission to rebuild the Churva synagogue and to buy land beyond the old city's walls with the intent of building housing to settle Jews there. What he was not successful in doing was buying the Kotel and having the Crimean railway extend from Jaffa to Jerusalem. The railway would not extend to Jerusalem until after Montefiore's death. He died in 1885. The railroad, the Tachanari Shona, which is today a bunch of bars and restaurants uh, and like city nightlife, began in 1892, 1892. 
And we'll get to that shortly. Was that where the Kaiser came into? The Kaiser came in Jaffa. Jaffa Gate, near Jaffa Gate. We'll get to where he goes in. Now, Montefiore straddled the old and new societies. He was the ideal of what the Victorians thought a Jew should be. He was known as that grand old Hebrew, that grand old Hebrew. For a thousand English sovereigns, which I can't tell you how much that is in American dollars of today, he bought land across the Hinnom Valley between the Zion and Jaffa Gates. He wanted to build a hospital and a Kentish windmill so that Jews could make their own bread. He got the Pasha to remove the Muslim abattoir, the slaughterhouse, which was causing a stench in the Jewish quarter. That the Jewish quarter smelled terrible in the early 1850s because there was a schlachthaus, there was a, a shrita place for, for halal meats that was just at the edge of the Jewish quarter and the stench was wafting over. He was able to get it removed. Okay. Montefiore returned in 1857 with the materials for the windmill and for uh, building these uh, almshouses that he had, had an idea of constructing. Construction began in 1859 on Mishkenot Sha'ananim, the dwellings of delight. They opened in 1860. This was the first Jewish place of habitation for the city of Jerusalem outside the old city walls. But as anyone who's been there will tell you, and the, the tour guides will mention, the people didn't feel safe at night. So what did they do? They went back into the city, which still locked its gates every evening. So it was a sort of a daytime uh, place of residence that people feared to be out in the, uh, in the wilderness, abandoned uh, at night. The windmill at first did function and produced cheap bread. So this lowered the price of basic staple of, of one's diet. However, it broke down shortly thereafter for two reasons. One, lack of Judean wind to actually have the windmill turning. And secondly, it was a Kentish windmill, which required maintenance by people from England. And such people did not exist in Ottoman Jerusalem. So it got stuck and was never fixed. Although if you go there today, what will you notice? Part of the windmill is not the original. Uh, some of the, the propeller parts were replaced over the years, are, are now metallic ones from the last, I think, 15, 20 years. Okay. Well, Montefiore was spending some of his own money, but not only his money, on these various building projects and philanthropy. He was a conduit for the money of other people, notably members of the Rothschild family who he was married into, uh, and his friend Judah Toro. Judah Toro, who we've uh, mentioned in American Jewish history, the New Orleans businessman who died without an heir to his estate in 1854, and in his will had Moses Montefiore be the executor of a portion of his estate, specifically $60,000 to benefit the Jews of Jerusalem. And that was the money that was used to build Mishkanot Sha'anani. So this was American money building up Jewish Jerusalem beyond the old city walls. The question comes up whether Montefiore was a political Zionist or not. And since he died in 1885, it's hard to say because Chibat Sion was first getting underway when he was going into the kever. Uh, but he did make several comments in the last 20 years of his life about what he felt should be the trajectory of the redemption. And in his view, uh, divine agency would, would bring the redemption, not human effort. So he's willing to build up uh, Jewish Jerusalem for those who are there and for those who might come there, but not as some sort of... Uh, step in the direction of the apocalypse or the cataclysm. You know, he, he's not looking to bring the end of days. He's just looking to help Jews as a matter of tzedakah. Yet, 
his activities did expand the, uh, the Ir HaKodesh. Now, in 1859, in April, Alexander II, the Tsar of Russia, had a brother, Sergei, who was the first Romanov to visit Jerusalem. And he was enthralled with what he saw. The Russian Orthodox Church had a very strong devotion to earthly Jerusalem. Not just the mystical heavenly Jerusalem, but the earthly Jerusalem. And Russia committed to a cultural offensive in the holy city. They started to build what became known as the Russian compound. I'm sure you've all been there at some point or another. Well, the Russian compound is an 18-acre campus just outside the old city. Today, the Iria is there, the municipality, uh, the Museum of the, of, of, the, of the Underground Fighters is the old prison. Uh, there, you still see some of the Russian Orthodox churches. There were the Russian pubs, including Putin, which went out of business recently because the city is now sort of clearing that area for redevelopment. But the area that is bounded by Jaffa Road, Rehov Hanavi'im, and Shivtei Yisrael, that triangle is this large, expansive uh, Russian compound. It was built mostly between 1860 and 1864, although it, the, the construction continued until about 1890. And it was designed to meet the needs of thousands upon thousands of Russian Orthodox pilgrims who made their way from the, uh, the, the depths of Russia, the villages, the shtetls, the goyesha shtetls, all the way to the Middle East. But the Russians were not the only ones committed to building up Jerusalem and a Christian, Christianized Jerusalem. The British were just as committed. And the thinking in, in England was that Jerusalem was a little piece of England. This, this absurd notion that Jerusalem was a part of England. Archaeology became Jerusalem's secular religion, a science in the service of God. Whose God? Uh, your God, whatever God you have, you know, science in the service of your deity. And if it could confirm the truths of the Bible and of the passion of Christ, then Christians could reclaim the Holy Land for itself. Meaning, even though the Ottomans have physical control, it's their army, it's their governor, but still, if the churches, or rather the Christian nations of the West, can send their representatives, their consul generals, their archaeologists, their priests, their ministers, to build up a presence in that holy city, then lo and behold, Christianity is the victor in all this and defeats Islam. The consuls of the great powers were nearly all amateur archaeologists, including the Americans, the French, and German representatives. It was jokingly known as a peaceful crusade. So instead of a crusade of, of swords and, uh, and blood and guts, the likes of which was seen from 1099 up until the middle of the 1200s, now, nobody's killing anyone else, but you send your representatives to win the victory in the metaphysical battle for the soul of Jerusalem. Well, who came? The British captain, Charles Wilson, found Wilson's Arch. Okay, where is Wilson's Arch? You've probably all been in, well, at least the men have probably all been inside, the ladies maybe not, although even the ladies might have actually. Yeah, the okay, so Wilson's Arch is uh, a, 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 a Herodian period arch of the Great Bridge, which connected the city with the temple across the Terrapian Valley. So 
today, where do we see it? It's at the northern end of the Kotel. The northern end of the Kotel, the, the outdoor Kotel, if you go inside, what is there? Yeah, more people davening and more are in Kodesh until you go further about maybe two, three hundred feet. And when you hit, you hit a, a wall. You can't go any further. Well, that arch, when you go into the inside, that's Wilson's arch. It was from Herodian period, a bridge to go from the city to Harabait. Well, what about... Okay, so the American professor, Edward Robinson, founded Robinson's Arch. Where is Robinson's Arch? Probably about 500 feet south of that. Uh, Maybe 600, 700 feet south of that. And that was another bridge that led people from the city up the ramp onto the Temple Mount. And although he was a Christian missionary, Robinson, he proved something for the Jews. Namely, that if any Muslim were to claim that the Haram al-Sharif is not the remnants of the, of the Jewish temple of old, well, baloney, it is the, the remnants of the Jewish temple of old. So here you have Canadians, you have British, you have Americans, all going, archaeology tools in hand, f- discovering things, and naming it after themselves. The British established the Palestine Exploration Society. Lieutenant Charles Warren was the key figure. A young man, when he came in 1867, he discovered Hezekiah's pottery, which was the first uh, actual real archaeological discovery of shards, of identifiable shards in the soil of Jerusalem. He discovered Warren's shaft, which he named after himself. The Ophel Hill, Warren's gate, which he named after himself. And the Jewish cave. If you recall, the Jewish cave was the site along the Western Wall below the ground level where the Jews davened uh, for many centuries during the medieval period. The Ottoman governor, Fuad Pasha, was, uh, was asked whether or not he would facilitate this archaeological experimentation going on by the, by the Christians. And he said, I would never concede any road improvements to these crazy Christians as they would transform Jerusalem into a Christian madhouse. So behold, the Ottomans are governing this place. They see Westerners coming with wild ideas about converting people, about discovering facts about the past. And you know, they may want some infrastructure improvements. And what does the Ottoman governor say? I'm not giving them to you. Because if I give you infrastructure improvements, you'll take even more. And you'll just keep pushing and pushing until you take the whole thing. The Ottomans were keenly aware of a desire on the part of the Western Christians to take over the whole place, which will ultimately happen at the end of World War I. Jerusalem had at least two faces and a multiple personality disorder. On the one hand, there's the gleaming imperial edifices built by the Europeans as they rapidly Christianize both the Muslim quarter and the periphery of the city. But this existed alongside the old Ottoman city, where black Sudanese uh, Africans protected the haram and guarded condemned prisoners whose heads still rolled in public executions. So, Here you have a city where the white man is showing up, the Westerner, doing his thing, his science, his archaeology, his religion, his missionary work, building up big, big buildings, nice modernized buildings. But on the other hand, you have a a backward Ottoman city where you have a slave population, you have African soldiers guarding a Muslim shrine, and you have executions with chopping people's heads off, which is inconsistent with the modernizing of the city in a Western fashion. So, moreover, a third of the city was actually a wasteland, 
And the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was surrounded by open space. If you, if you look at pictures, photographs of the city from the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, it doesn't look totally built up. Not every nook and cranny is taken. There's still plenty of empty space. These two worlds frequently clashed, the old world and the new world. So, for example, the telegraph, which was invented when? 1844. By Samuel Morse, okay, yeah. arrived in the Middle East in the 1860s. And telegraph service was first available from Istanbul to Jerusalem in 1865, the year the Civil War ended. And what happened? Whatever, what happens when new technology hits an area of religious fundamentalism? It's us. It's us. It's forbidden, right? So an Arab horseman, a fundamentalist, decided to attack the telegraph line. And what happened? He was executed and hung from that very line. Okay, so you hear the old world and the new world clashing with each other. Okay. Montefiore came back to Jerusalem in 1866. He received permission to put up an awning at the Western Wall, which is a big deal because if you remember, the status quo is very sacred at the Western Wall. And the Muslims are not interested in the Jews entrenching themselves there with the trappings of a synagogue. Okay, He came one final time, Montefiore did, at the age of 91 in 1875. Can you imagine in 1875 as a nanogenarian traveling to Jerusalem? And he said he was amazed by, by, by what he saw. I beheld almost a new Jerusalem springing up from new buildings, some of them as fine as any in Europe. So here, the, one of the wealthiest people in the world is saying Jerusalem is not the backward place I first saw 40 years ago. It looks differently than it did when I first came here. It's looking more European now. Samuel Langhorn Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, okay, went to the Holy Land in 1867 on what was the Grand Holy Land Pleasure Excursion. But he uh, derisively called it the Grand Holy Land Funeral Expedition. So uh, instead of pleasure expedition, excursion, it was funeral expedition. Uh, He mocked the sincerity of those American pilgrims whom he labeled Innocence Abroad, which was the the title of the book. and was a bestseller, Innocence Abroad. He commented that it's a relief to walk a hundred yards without encountering another site that the tour guides are always telling, Oh, this is a site here, but this happened to Jesus. This happened to Hezekiah. This happened to David. This happened to Solomon. Everywhere you turn, there's another rock. Another pebble is another historic site. He says, you can walk a hundred feet and not see one. You'd be lucky. But what he really was saying was, these are all bogus that the tour guides are telling you things that are they're making up out of whole cloth, that there may be, yes, historic places in Jerusalem, but every last shard of pottery or pebble is not some great historic site. And the only claim it is to, you know, to have a tourist industry. Okay. Well, uh, he ridiculed the superstitions and unsupported beliefs of those who came. And he thought of Jerusalem as a pauper village. He was very unimpressed by what he saw. Um, he was also largely unimpressed by what the Arab population of the broader land of Palestine was doing to, uh, to cultivate the soil. And Zionists like to quote Mark Twain's book in justifying the Jewish effort to reclaim Eretz Israel for ourselves and to build it up as a new yeshuv. Uh, among the, the various forerunners of Zion, Mark Twain enters into that pantheon of, of heroes that we can, we, we can look back upon and say he was on our team. Even though really he didn't actually say all that much. He just said it looks terrible and the Muslims are in control. Okay, well, tourists were good at seeing where the gods had stood. 
However, they were almost blind when it came to seeing the actual people living and breathing in Jerusalem of the 1860s, 70s, and 80s. So they saw the, the, the mythology, and they were indoctrinated in the mythology, but turned a totally blind eye to what was actually in front of them. And to be honest, Jews who go to Israel today sometimes do this very same thing. We could be totally oblivious to the real world of Israel and live in sort of the, the Jewish Disneyland version we, we are told. That's what tourists do. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Now, they saw the diversity of the costumes in the streets and dismissed the images that they did not like as oriental filth. In other words, they did not see it. They saw it, but they chose to overlook it and regard it dismissively as oriental filth. Instead, they would build the grand, authentic holy city that they had expected to find. This drove imperial interest in Jerusalem, ignoring the Arabs and ignoring the Sephardic Jews, and largely ignoring the Ashkenazic Jews who were the the pious uh, ultra-Orthodox. So this version of Jerusalem that you want to see is that of the churches, the historic sites, the newly built uh, hotels and accommodations, that's what is the focus of the attention of these arrivals. Now, what about the people who actually lived in the city? So in the 1870s, relations were fairly good between the various ethnic and religious groups. Gentiles participated in Purim celebrations, Jews gave Gentiles matzah on Passover, and Arabs gave the Jews fresh bread right after Pesach was over a primitive version of the Mimuna. Arabs would ask Sephardic rabbis to pray for rain during drought. So you could see there's not always going to be hostile relations between Jews and Muslims, Muslim and Jews, Christians and Muslims, Christians and Jews. It doesn't have to be that bad. The worst relations were between Arab Orthodox Christians and Jews. Why? Well, theological differences and also uh, conflict over space. Um, But it was a city of music, of dancing, of bathhouses, of brothels. There was a lot of excitement going on in this Jerusalem. The families, and in the literature, the families is with an uppercase F. Families, the Arab families of Jerusalem, were the apex of society. And each one of these families had a fiefdom. The Dajani family, was at David's tomb on Mount Zion, or the fake David's tomb on Mount Zion. The Husseini family, they had a fiefdom on the Temple Mount. The Khalidi family, the the law courts, the Alami family, all these families competed for the mayoralty, and in turn, various members of these families would have the mayoralty, or also, and or, the, the, the mufti position. The Husseinis backed the old aristocracy. The Khalidi families the new liberals, were the new liberals. This should come as no surprise. What do we find in the 20th century? That the Husseini was a mufti who was an old line bigot and hated Jews. And the Khalidi family were among the Palestinian nationalists, the least hostile to the Jewish people and to Zionism and to you know, modern Israel. Okay. Well, what about the travel business? Thomas Cook established the travel business and an office near Jaffa Gate. Jaffa Gate was the hub of tourist-friendly Jerusalem. And it was for a very long time. When the railroad arrived in 1892, the city was truly opened up to international tourism. 
And something else developed together with that tourism, a certain technological art. And what am I referring to? Photography. Photography in the Holy Land is going hand in hand with the tourism industry. What do you do when you, when you go on a trip? You bring your camera. All right, but you don't have a camera. Ah, but the professionals have it. The photographers have cameras and the most advanced variety. So some of the best photographs of Eretz Yisrael from the late 1800s and early 1900s are from Christian pilgrims who go on one of these pleasure excursions and they hire a professional photographer to take the photos and they bring them back and have them in their archives. In addition to that, the tchotchkes were developed where you'd have a photograph inside of some keepsake, some memento that some people still have to this day. It has a, a, a picture, whether of the Temple Mount or of the Mount of Olives or of the city as a whole from high vantage point, you get a nice, nice picture. So photography develops together with the tourism. The new Christian edifices at the end of the century were quite numerous. There were 27 French convents, 10 Italian and 8 Russian. So a lot of Nonprofit religious institutions dominating the old city and even parts of the new city uh, at the end of the century, turn of the new century. The Sultan, he added new fountains, drinking fountains and aesthetic fountains, and very importantly for the purposes of pilgrimage, built the new gate in 1892. So the new gate, which is uh, not that far from the Jaffa Gate, but around the bend, and across from uh, the city hall area where the light rail is today and a good maybe 800 feet from Damascus Gate. So that new gate, where does it take you? Right into the heart of the Christian quarter to get to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre very, very, very quickly. It was a genius move to build this gate because it facilitated the, the flow of, of tourists and pilgrims in and out very quickly. Okay, but what about... And one more thing he did was add a bell tower to the Jaffa Gate, which you can see pictures of it. 1901, this bell tower looked right out of England. It didn't look like a indigenous to the Middle East. A bell tower or the Jaffa Gate it seemed odd. Okay. What about Jewish expansion? So, as I mentioned before, the Montefiore Quarter, Mishkanot Shananim, with the windmill, was the first thing outside the old city, 1860. But it was... Not the last. It was just the first. We're getting started here. Machane Yisrael was 1867. Nachalat Shiva, 1869. And then Mea 1873. I think we're going to spend a full session on the history of Mea later in the year. When we do locations after we finish the chronological timeline. Um, by 1880, the Jewish population of the city had expanded to 17,000 people. And the Jews formed a majority of the overall population. This is important because if the city were run by democratic means, that, that would produce a Jewish mayoralty, a Jewish city council. But we're not there yet because the Ottomans are still in control, running a dictatorial, dictatorial regime. There will be a mayor who has some municipal responsibilities, but that municipal mayor will always be an Arab until the 20th century, when we finally have Jewish mayors after 1948. Yeah, yeah, they're allowing construction. Yes, Jews buy land and they can build, they can build. Okay. Uh, But not only are the Jews building outside the old city, even the Arabs are now building. And so, for example, the wealthy families, the Husseinis and the Nashashibis, who are rivals, 
they build their suburb at Sheikh Jarrah to the north. Why? It's too crowded in the Muslim quarter. We want space. So go up to Sheikh Jarrah, it's empty space. The Husseini family built a special house, Orient House, which would serve as what in the 1980s and 90s? Who knows? Orient House. Huh? The PLO headquarters in Jerusalem was in the Orient House. Now, what was the, the controversy over that? It was contrary to Israeli law to allow PLO representation in Jerusalem, which is annexed territory of the state of Israel. So during the 1990s, under the Rabin administration, it was sort of, uh, maybe yes, maybe no. Are they going to allow it, not allow it? Then Bibi tried to shut it down. Sharon shut it down completely. It was uh, always a source of controversy whether the PLO was active in Jerusalem. Okay. Um, now let's get to some of the Americans. Americans come to Israel, to Palestine, as religious missionaries uh, with a, a strong agenda of bringing the second coming. They want Jesus back as soon as possible. So we have the story of the, fa- the Spafford family, Anna and Horatio Spafford, who were on their way to Jerusalem uh, pilgrimage when several of their children died a ship, in a shipwreck accident. Uh, they drowned. Another child died of, of malaria. They had six children. Only one survived. And so Anna Spafford decided to establish a messianic sect called the Overcomers. We're going to overcome. We shall overcome all of our travails. And they would do good works in Jerusalem, restore the Jews to the, pal- to, to the promised land, convert them, and bring the second coming. They're, they would keep uh, milk warm at all times, just in case Jesus was on his way. They were keeping his milk warm because he could come in any minute. That was their attitude. Well, these were not Roman Catholics. No, no. These were Protestants who had uh, fallen out of favor with the Presbyterians and they wanted to do their own thing. So in 1881, they established the nucleus of the American colony. All right. Now, where was the American colony? Where is the American colony today? Huh? Okay. So originally, it was just inside of the Damascus Gate. However, 15 years later, in 1896, they decided to move out of the old city in the vicinity of Sheikh Jarrah, where the American Colony Hotel is currently located. Um, The colony was a philanthropic center, a hospital, an orphanage, a church, a soup kitchen, you name it, offering these welfare services to anyone who would, who would request it, and specifically trying to appeal to Jews to convert them to their form of Christianity. Uh, although the Westerners played a role in transforming the city, it was from Russia where the greatest impact came. But this Russian influence is of two very different varieties. On the one hand, you have Jews, Russian Jews fleeing persecution. So we're talking about after the pogroms of 1881-1882, where the first Aliyah will send about 40,000 Jews to Palestine. A significant number of them are traditional Jews who go to, Eretz- who go to Jerusalem, but also Russian Orthodox pilgrims and politicians who come with their own ideas 
about Christianizing the city. So they traveled from Odessa, okay, through the Straits, Bosporus Straits, down Mediterranean to the port of Jaffa, take the railroad or travel before there was railroad by, uh, by donkey, by camel, whatever it is, across to Yerushalayim. And so here you have Jews fleeing persecution and Russian Christian pilgrims on the same boats, on the same caravans, going to the same place, but with very different ideas in mind. Okay. The Russian peasants, they would walk all the way from their villages in Russia to Odessa, hundreds of miles, just to get to the port, to take the boat, to go to, to the Holy Land. The Tsar believed that Russia could be saved from the anarchist threat, the anarchist peril, by way of autocracy and orthodoxy. So the two pillars, autocracy, one man rule, the czarist rule, and orthodoxy, old line Russian Christian orthodoxy, will save it from the threat of communism, socialism, anarchism, whatever it is. Uh, yeah? No. You have the Russians, Russian Orthodox. Yeah. You have the American Protestants. Yes. There. You have the you have the, the French and you have the British. Was there any competition among these different Christian sects? So okay, good. The question is, was there competition among the Christian sects? And the answer is among the Latin Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox sects who were already present before the 19th century in Jerusalem, they were competing, fighting tooth and nail over the real core holy places like Church of the Holy Sepulchre and uh, Church of the Nativity. However, the, the Western sects of Protestantism were not going to get involved in that. That wasn't their domain. They're building up their own institutions on land that they buy. Of course, there's competition for the choicest spots to buy, but there's plenty of space to be had, to be honest. And each one will do their own thing, building up their institutions, usually not just a church, but also some social welfare organization and a hostel for uh, welcoming pilgrims of their variety. And to build up, like, you know, fancy cathedral type places that will make a name for themselves. And we'll see with the Russians exactly which, what they build on Mount of Olives. Okay, so this idea of the Russians, that autocracy and orthodoxy will save them, was itself going to be strengthened by a cult of pilgrimage to Jerusalem, that thousands upon thousands of Russians have to make the trip and then come back. In 1888, Alexander III appointed his brother, Sergei, as president of the Imperial Orthodox Palestine Society, and they built the Church of Mary Magdalene, with the seven gold bulb domes on the Mount of Olives. You've all seen it. The ones that look like the, the, the church by the Kremlin, okay? So the, that's at the base of the Mount of Harazetim, Mount of Olives. It was built in eight, between 1888 and 1892. Um, and Sergei's anti-Semitism was very intense. He drove Russian Jews to find sanctuary in Zion. So the irony of the whole thing is the guy who's building churches in Yerushalayim is an anti-Jewish bigot who's forcing Jews to move to Yerushalayim. So it's sort of, it's sort of like a, working across purposes. You're trying to build up a Christian character of the city, yet your bigotry in the diaspora is causing Jews to move to that city. But you're getting rid of Jews on your homeland. Okay, everybody, you benefit, you lose some, you win some, you lose some. Okay, now, by 1890, 
There were 25,000 Jews in Jerusalem at a total population of about 40,000. So it's a substantial majority. 25 out of 40,000. The arrival of Russian Jews was making a major difference in the city's demography. The Arab families recognized the danger of Jewish immigration and petitioned the Sultan for a ban. And those bans were, were issued both in 1882 and 1889. However, the enforcement of those bans left a lot to be desired as far as the Arabs were concerned. It was ignored. And Jews came and they stayed. And despite the fact they might have been so-called illegal aliens, didn't matter. Once you're in, you're in. But the Jews of Russia are not the only Jews who are moving to the city. In the 1870s, Persian Jews came, both from Tehran and Mashhad, and even from Kerman and Esfahan. In the 1880s, Yemenite Jews came from, from Sana'a and elsewhere. And in the 1890s, Bukharan Jews came from uh, the, the, the Caucasus, from the, 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 the Central Republic area. Well, this means that the Jews of Jerusalem are a diverse bunch. There is the old line Sephardim, who had been the dominant element for a while. There is now a glut of Polish-Russian Ashkenazim, of both Hasidic and Misnagdic variety, although predominantly Hasidic. And there's various uh, Eidotomizrach types, Bukharian, Persian, Yemenite, etc. Okay. 1898. Kaiser Wilhelm II, the Kaiser of Germany, plans a trip to Jerusalem. For what purpose? To negotiate with the Sultan over further capitulations to Western demands and to inaugurate a new church that the German Lutherans built near the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So again, there is competition for you know spots which to build your church, and the Lutherans had a, had a plum spot uh, in the Christian quarter. He was Kaiser Wilhelm II was a raving anti-Semite who railed against the dangers of the hydra of Jewish capitalism. You know, he died in 1941, just before the Shoah, and he was deposed in 1918. And his relationship with the Nazis and Hitler is complicated. We can't get into that now. But he was a real Jew hater, a real, real big time Jew hater. Um, Herzl tried to use the Kaiser to get the Sultan to sell the land of Israel to the Jews. And when we discussed Zionism, we had a whole course on it. We, we went through the life of Herzl and his two meetings with the Kaiser. One was in Istanbul, one was in Jerusalem. But um, since we're discussing Jerusalem now, I want to mention his second meeting that occurred in the city. Well, the Kaiser um, spoke to the Sultan about Herzl's requests and the desire of the Jews to buy the promised land. And the Sultan's response was basically over my dead body. As long as I'm alive, you're not getting it. Maybe when I'm gone, he said, things might change. But as long as I'm alive, the Jews are not getting Palestine, not getting Jerusalem. So on October 29th, 1898, Kaiser Wilhelm II enters Jerusalem. Where? What's the exact spot? You've all been there. Next to the Jaffa Gate is a big hole in the wall. That's about 60, 70 feet wide. Why does that hole exist? The answer is it was chopped down. The walls were, were removed so that the Kaiser could enter on a horse with all the regalia, including the feather coming from the top of his big hat, and a person on such a high horse, figuratively and literally, could not enter through the Jaffa Gate. It wasn't tall enough. So they had to knock down a whole section of wall to allow him to go through. That's a sign of great chutzpah. 
of hubris, of thinking you're the most important thing ever, you know, to, 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 to destroy a section of the, the ancient walls of Jerusalem, the Sulamanic walls of Jerusalem, just so you can go on a high horse, that's, uh, thinks you, you think you're the center of attention. Let's contrast that with a man who would enter Jerusalem 19 years later. Who am I referring to? General Allenby. Allenby. He would get off of his horse and enter through the Jaffa Gate on foot in deference to the sanctity, to the holiness of historic Jerusalem. And he recognized, I'm just one man. Yes, I am a, I'm a conquering general, but I'm only one man. And Jerusalem is thousands of years of civilization. He got off the horse and walked. So that's the difference in the chutzpah of the Kaiser and the, the anivus, the, humil- the humility of Allenby. Okay. Well, by the way, what's the halachic significance of the fact that they, they, they tore down the section of wall? Okay, so the issue of reading Megillah presumably is not affected by that, even though it's, it has to be Mukefes Choma, so it's a good suggestion. There's another issue. The Eruv, right, the Eruv, because you've got you to put up a wire. Okay, now, um, well, the Kaiser was the first head of state to go to Jerusalem and have for his state visit an official photographer. Remember I said photography develops with tourism? Well, there are many photos of this imperial visit because he had a state, he had an official photographer go with him on this state visit. So we have a lot of documentary evidence of the kinds of things we didn't see previously. He visited the Temple Mount, all right, went on Harabait, and asked the Mufti to permit excavations on the Temple Mount. What was the Mufti's response? No way, no way. Refusal. So while there are excavations going on all over Yerushalayim, archaeology is the new secular religion, the Temple Mount is like a no-go zone. You can't do it until somebody does it without permission. And then all hell breaks loose. We're going to get to that shortly. Okay. So Herzl met with Wilhelm at his luxurious encampment north of the Damascus Gate on November 2nd, 1898. November 2nd, 1898, exactly 19 years to the day before the Balfour Declaration. And I want to read to you a description provided by the tour maestro, John Mason Cook, who, uh, who ran the, 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 the touring company that arranged this expedition. He referred to it as the largest party gone to Jerusalem since the Crusades. So I'm going to read in Montefiore's uh, History of Jerusalem the, dis- the description. This was a luxury that Thomas Cook village with 230 tents, which had been transported in 120 carriages, borne by 1300 horses, served by 100 coachmen, 600 drivers, 12 cooks and 60 waiters, all guarded by an Ottoman regiment. Can you imagine that? Thousands of people had to participate to make a luxurious travel experience for the Kaiser of Germany. I mean, yes, like when the president of the United States goes to Jerusalem, he stays in the King David Hotel, they take over the first floor, or maybe they take over the whole building. That's just one hotel. This was like two, 3,000 people as an entourage so that the Kaiser could have his luxurious experience. Okay. A wedding in Westbury like that list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, the Kaiser transformed the skyline of the city. Two important edifices, tall edifices on a high spot, were built by German 
uh, government representatives or church representatives during the Kaiser's tenure. One was the Dormition Abbey, located on Mount Zion. The other was the hospital, Augusta Victoria, located where? At the top of Mount of Olives, towards Mount Scopus. Okay, so the Augusta Victoria Hospital, which is to, to this day an important hospital in the Palestinian East Jerusalem Health Network, was built between 1907 and 1914, named after the Kaiser's wife, um, and was in its time a very important institution. By the way, and when we when we get to Har, we'll, we'll spend a whole session on Harazetim, Mount of Olives. We'll discuss Augusta Victoria. Just one little detail: there was um, like a hotel as part of the hospital complex with a club, and in the 1930s there were no Jews allowed. Why? To preserve the Christian character of the Augusta Victoria. But bear in mind, this is a German institution in the 1930s, no Jews allowed. Okay, so the Nazi influence was present. All right. Well, both the Kaiser and Herzl loathed the Jerusalem that they found. They didn't like what they saw. Herzl said, when I remember Jerusalem, it won't be with delight. The musty deposits of 2,000 years of inhumanity, intolerance, and foulness lie in your reeking alleys. The Western Wall, he said, was pervaded by hideous, miserable, and scrambling beggary. Guess what? It still is. <laughs> All right. So Herzl did not like the Yerushalayim of 1898. He, to his mind, it, it was no, no good. By 1898, Jerusalem had 45,300 inhabitants, of whom 28,000 were Jewish. And this worried the Palestinian leadership. Though Yosef Khalidi conceded to his friend, the French chief rabbi Sadak Khan, quote, God knows historically it is indeed your country. So here, one of the prominent Palestinian family members is saying, yeah, you know what, we know this is really a Jewish country, but uh, we're not happy about the fact that you guys are seemingly taking over the city. Clashes would become inevitable. Well, let's now go to the first decade of the 20th century. David Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion said that the most effective way to combat Ugandism was to settle Eretz Israel. What is Ugandism? Okay, so Ugandism is basically Jewish territorialism that was willing to accept a Jewish national home somewhere other than the land of Israel. Uganda being the main uh, uh, pr proposal in 1903, but not the only such proposal. So how do you combat Ugandism? The Zionists of Zion, the real Zionists, so to speak, go to Eretz Yisrael. However, however, the second Aliyah, which lasts, let's say, 1904 uh, to 1914, 1903-1914, was extraordinarily secular and uh, very much socialist. So what stands out in the second Aliyah? The building of Kibbutzim in the north and the building of Tel Aviv on the coast. What is not part of their experience? Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a very frum and basically backward city by the time of the second Aliyah. Yes, Christians and Western influence had changed the city. It was no longer an Ottoman backwater completely. It had its own uh, you know, modern conveniences and it had its uh, up-to-date 
amenities, but that wasn't Jewish. The Jewish part of the city was still very old-fashioned. And the new type Jew, the Yishuv HaChadash, as opposed to the Yishuv HaYashan, was not going to Jerusalem. So therefore, Ben-Gurion himself, when he came to Israel, did not even bother visiting the city of Yerushalayim until about a year into his, his time in the country. Uh, he would later live in Jerusalem as a, as a functionary, as a clerical worker, as a writer, when he gave up being a worker. You know, Ben-Gurion wanted to fashion himself a worker, a poel, a, a, real, a real tiller of the soil, but he was actually an abysmal failure. If you, know, if you know his biography, he tried going up north to work and it didn't work out for him. And so he ended up just being a paper pusher in Jerusalem for a while until he went, you know, off to America. So the first car in Jerusalem went to the American colony, 1906, and it drove down the Jaffa Road, which was newly fixed up, uh, not necessarily paved, but improved so that it wasn't as uh, bumpy and could handle vehicular traffic. The first movie theater was in the Russian compound. The rich Arab families were thriving in the early 20th century. They adopted Western fashions and even sent their girls to school. So now you have Christian schools teaching French and English and prominent Arab families sending their children there. The British school introduced soccer to Yerushalayim. So it wasn't... uh, you know, uh, Beitar Yerushalayim, it was the British school in 1905 and introduced soccer into the country. The men of the prominent families enjoyed playing cards and having concubines. The mistresses were usually Jewish, although sometimes Armenian or Greek. However, now there was a surplus of Russian pilgrims and the Russians contributed to the city's hedonism. Rasputin, that sinister character who had an influence, an undue influence in the Romanov dynasty, first came to Jerusalem in 1903. And he warned the nuns, don't travel here, lest you get caught up in the debauchery. There was a real serious problem of, of ecclesiastics getting involved in prostitution and just the worst vices. Um, another, another feature of Jerusalem at that time, which scared off some of the Russian p- pilgrims, was that Marxist propaganda was being preached to these Russian pilgrims so they could be sent back to, to Russia, to Mother Russia, and poison the society. Okay, now we get to the infamous case of the British captain, Monty Parker. Monty Parker was a, a Vildechaya, basically. He decided to dig on the Temple Mount in 1911 without permission. Remember I said no excavations were allowed by the Waqf? And the Mufti said, no, 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 you can't do it. So he dressed up as an Arab, and got caught on April 17th at night, chiseling away on the Temple Mount. He had to flee to Jaffa, where he got in a boat and escaped the country. But the police were littered all over the country that he might have stolen some, some things. They thought he had the Ark of the Covenant, the Crown of Solomon, and the Sword of Muhammad. He absconded with all these things. So the city was on edge, and the Christians feared a pogrom. The Europeans all locked their doors. Uh, The Parker fiasco was the closest thing the city city ever came to having an anti-Christian riot. Now remember, there'll be anti-Jewish riots in 1920, in 1921, in 1929, 1936. There'll be Palestinian uh, Arab nationalism attacking the Jews of the Yishuv in Yerushalayim. But anti-Christian riots 
never happened. The closest it ever came in the American colony was very nervous. So we're going to all get killed was 1911 because it was Monty Parker. Now what happened? Parker got away. I think he died uh, like an old man in like 1960 something or other. He lived to be a very long life. But his accomplices who didn't get away were put on trial. What happened to them? Lost their heads? No, they were acquitted. Why? Because nothing actually was stolen. They didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. They didn't have the crown of Solomon. They didn't have the Muhammad, sword of Muhammad. All that was just rumor flying around. But in fact, they had none of these things because none of these things are actually there. Okay. Now, um, this episode was the end of 50 years of European archaeology and imperialism. 1911, just before World War One, this whole half a century stretch of these Europeans coming in and trying to muscle their way around and dig and take and find artifacts and build churches. This is sort of the end of it. World War I comes. German forces arrive and the Jews are very happy. The Germans take over for England as the protector of the Jewish population. Now remember, the consuls of the various European powers protected their people in the city during the, because of the capitulations of the Ottoman Empire. Who protected the Jews? The British. Remember what I said, why did the British protect the Jews? Because the British wanted an influence and a toehold in the city, and there were very few Protestants in the city. So if the French had the Catholics and the Russians had the Orthodox, uh, the, the British had to have, and, and, and the, uh, the Germans had, the, had whom they had, the British needed somebody, they took the Jews. Now the Germans are going to protect the Jews. But Ahmed Jamal takes over as the Ottoman governor on November 18th, 1914, as the dictator of greater Syria. And he was brutal and killed many people. There were hangings every Friday at Damascus Gate and Jaffa Gate in front of large crowds. So he's killing people left and right. Jamal suspected the Zionists of treason. And I want to read to you one sentence that he said. Why did the Ottoman governor of Jerusalem suspect the Jews, the Zionists of treason, during the war. Listen to this logic. And it's not a bad logic, actually. Quote, I have no trust in your loyalty. Had you no conspiratorial designs, you wouldn't have come to live here in the desolate land among Arabs who hate you. It's true. It's pretty, good, pretty darn good logic. If the Jews were not conspiratorially minded, what are they doing living among a bunch of Vildechaya Arabs in Jerusalem when they come from Europe? So that's his proof or his line of argumentation to say, I can't trust you. You must have some sinister plot in mind. Okay. Well, the Jews of Jerusalem switched their allegiances. Ben Gurion himself, now off to America, uh, hitches his hopes with the Allies. So instead of fighting for the Ottomans and the Germans, now the hope is that the, the British will win. Many Jews and Christians from the city were sent to labor battalions to build roads. And of, of those people, a bunch died of hunger, starvation, of exposure. By 1918, the Jewish population of Jerusalem had dropped by 20,000. So this is a tremendous drop. Now, the overall population, Jewish population of Eretz Israel, took a tremendous tumble because there were mass expulsions. Where were people sent to? Egypt. Okay, it's where Jabotinsky went. Uh, it's where um, some members of the Aronson family went. And now you have... Um, members of the Jewish community of, 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 of Egypt, who had formerly been in Eretz Israel, petitioning to establish uh, the, the Jewish legion, and that they fight for the British to take uh, back uh, Eretz Israel. So here, the Jewish population declined dramatically. 
the poor Hasidic Jews of Mea Sharim, their stomachs were bloated from the lack of food, from starvation. Jamal thought of himself as a city planner. He wanted to knock down the old city walls and make a boulevard, a wide boulevard, from Jaffa Gate all the way to the Temple Mount. But, of course, that never happened, and he himself uh, had a bad demise, and the city was eventually taken by the British in 1917, which we'll discuss next time. Well, there's one thing Jamal did that affected the, the demographics of the city. Unlike some of his colleagues up in Turkey, he was not in favor of the Armenian genocide. The Armenian genocide, which killed about a million and a half people, and was the most horrific thing in the 20th century, short of the Holocaust, um, was carried out points north. He opposed it. And when Armenian refugees fled from Turkey and Greece down to Ottoman Palestine, he welcomed them and they settled in Jerusalem. So the, the Armenian population in the city doubled in World War I. The Jewish population tumbled. The Armenian population went up a lot. Were the Armenians part of the partnership in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre before this? Yes, they were, yeah. Okay, so we'll stop here. And next time, in a few weeks, we'll be back and we'll discuss the Arab Revolt, how that affects the city of Yerushalayim, the Balfour Declaration, and General Allenby's conquest. And we'll move beyond that into the interwar period and discuss the era of the British mandate uh, in the city. So my goal is to get through the British mandate period in one or two sessions and then spend one more session on post-1948 Jerusalem. And after we do that, then we'll get to locations, locations, locations. I've already been giving this, these lectures in Scarsdale. So the first four that we did already were Harabait, the Kotel, Hartzion, and Harazetin. And next week we're going to do Harazofim. So so this course is going to be a few more weeks of chrono- chronological history and then special locations for the rest of the season. Okay. Jamal, uh, he died. <laughs> <laughs>